Welcome to Authentic Jewish Living with Yiska, our journey into finding our own authentic expressions within the Jewish tradition. This indeed unfolds the path to encounter the divine within each one of us. As always, I hope that today's episode will help you understand that authentic living in fact is a spiritual practice and that authentic living is essential to the Jewish way of living. Welcome, everyone. Baruchot haba'ot, baruchim haba'im. This month's conversation, as with all, will highlight the diversity, the dynamic texture, and varied landscape that expresses and honors authentic Jewish living. I will be in conversation today with a special and unique personality, a unique personality in the Jewish world whose voice needs to be heard, must be heard by many, by all people who seek inspiration, encouragement, and support to be true and faithful to their inner selves. With excitement, with joy, and with so much gratitude, I am honored to be in conversation today with my dear friend, my teacher, and literally my neighbor, Rav Ari Zev Schwartz. Shalom, Rav Ari. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, Yiska. Welcome, Baruch Haba. So, a little bit about Rav Ari. Rav Ari Zev Schwartz is the author of The Spiritual Revolution of Rav Kook, Writings of a Jewish Mystic, published in 2018 by Geffen Publishing House. And I have to say, as an ongoing student of that book, I first came upon it two years ago on Rav Cook's uh, yurt site when I was blessed to be at a shiur with Rav Ari. And that book is one of my go-tos all the time. Continuing in his uh, resume, uh, or his bio rather, from 2016 to 2020, Rav Schwartz co-founded and was the Dean of the Society of Independent Spirituality, an English-speaking learning center in Yerushalayim that combines Jewish spirituality and Zionism. Rabbi Schwartz currently teaches in several yeshivot and midrashot in Yerushalayim. Wow, you do so much. (laughs) You're you're a writer, you're a teacher, you're a co-founder of of this incredible um, institute, learning center. At this point in your journey, in your soul journey, your life journey, and also looking at the way the world is right now, uh, how you see it, how you're moving with it, is there anything in particular that you want the listeners, in order to get to know you a little more, Is there anything that you're emphasizing or you're paying a little bit more attention to? Um, First of all, hi. Hi, hi, yeah. Thank you for inviting me to this special uh, platform um, into your home, your holy bite. Um, Well, I think something that I'm just working on right now in in my own life, my own connection to Hashem, is, um, is the ability to really say... I have a bayit, Yehudi, a Jewish home, which includes mitzvot, an Eretz, Eretz Yisrael, um, a Masoret, um, special clothes um, inherited, you know, for a man, kippan, tzitzit. Um, what a Masoret? A Masoret, a tradition, um, and uh, yeah, really just to fall in love with my own bayit, and, uh, and not because it's better or, or worse, um, not comparing to any other by it, but just to really fall in love with my um, Jewish home. And I think the reason why I feel like I'm emphasizing this is for, I think for a long time I was very excited by universal spirituality and finding the good, 
holy in everything and uh, which is a very important journey to be on in itself but eventually I became aware more and more that um, I think the the deepest way to respect all traditions is to fall in love with your own tradition mm. and mm. that is the real mm. service if you want to do to the world at least this is the way I feel right now very strongly is to really go deep into your own tradition and to really find yourself and your meaning and your joy in your own Jewish language um, in your own mitzvot and really not to see anything I think Franz Rodensweig said this you know the goal is to m- make sure there's nothing Jewish that feels foreign hmm. um, that you should really you know every minhag every halakha um, every uh, teacher uh, Jewish thinker you should feel like they're yours your home your Masoret your tradition and yeah I feel like that's something that sometimes can be neglected today because we're so um, global Everybody can get access to every single tradition and every single thinker. And sometimes we, we forget how beautiful it is to fall in love with your own bayit. And the, thing, the way I kind of think about it is kind of like comparing it to literally a family. That um, There's something very beautiful on the one hand in saying, I love every parent in the world. And, you know, there's beauty in every parent and beauty in every mother and father. Um, but I think it should start with, I'm in love with my actual parents. <laughs> and I actually love spending the time with my, my mother and my father. And I really want to get to know them. And I really want to invest time to them and call them. And even if sometimes it's uncomfortable, the deepest way to respect all parents is through my parents. And I sh- wow. should be very careful about preaching love towards all parents before I actually really fall in love with my own parents. And that's something, yeah, I've just been spending a lot of time developing just this deep, deep love towards Judaism lately as a way of saying, and that's how you really can show respect to all traditions. Remarkable. So what I'm hearing is that you're not disregarding, you're not judging unfavorably other traditions. However, you're honoring your own at this point in time and what I've seen in my own journey, as I nurture my own tradition, this tribal B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel tradition in many ways, it informs how I see other traditions. It actually is not in contradiction. It actually informs in a more positive way how I can honor other people's traditions. Because it's like you said with your parents. I love that. that that's beautiful. I love all parents. Let's start with my own mother and father. It would be like yeah. you, like if you were to visit a hospital, and and to visit your you know your mother or a person's mother, and they would say, I want to be such a tzaddik or a tzaddikah, I'm going to go visit all the other mothers first. <laughs> Meaning that's beautiful, but... Um, yeah. First and foremost, you have not just a responsibility, but you should feel this deep bond towards your actual concrete mother. Mm. So I think for a long time, uh, in, a, in a beautiful way, I was very excited about seeing the beautiful, divine, good qualities in every tradition, in every philosophy, in every culture. And lately I've come back to realizing um, i got to also fall in love with my own tradition. <laughs> and... Um, are you falling in love with your tradition? I, I feel like it's kind of like uh, uh, love. It's you know you fall in love, love at first sight. I think I had that when I was probably eighteen or nineteen. I have a deep, deep, you know, head over heels fall in love with Judaism, and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm you know, people like renew their vows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I feel like yeah, I have a really the last year or two just, just become absolutely, you know, in love with the Jewish tradition and in love with everything that comes out of it and every even Jewish food. <laughs> and uh, and obviously rabbis and, and, and Jewish spiritual teachers, um, men and women, and uh, and the fact that somebody quotes Piazetzna Rebbe, I get so excited. And it doesn't matter if I even agree with the idea that you're teaching something from my tradition. And I'm so deeply connected to God wow. through Judaism. Beautiful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so <clears throat> let's move on to uh, the four questions. Manish Tanaha podcast hazem mikolha podcasting. Okay, so the the first question I'd like to ask, uh, and you know, there's no there's no one way to answer this. This is what's wonderful. It's the same question, just like in the Haggadah Shal Pesach. You know, the questions are the same, and each year we answer them differently. 
because of our experiences, because of our life experience, who we are in the world, what goes on in the world, the outer world, the inner world. The first question is, within a Jewish framework, how do you understand the phrases, for example, authentic living, living my truth, which we hear a lot today, um, living with inner integrity? How do you how do you understand that? How do you see that? So I think to start with, um, I will want to say what I don't connect to those words, and then I'll say what I do connect about them. I think what I don't connect about them is the belief shared by some, not all, that authentic living is you can do whatever you want Mm -hmm. because it feels good. Um, And as long as I'm true to myself in the moment, then Hashem or God is on my side. That's something I don't connect to, and I think sometimes it can lead to a very self-absorbed spirituality, and we have to be careful when we do complement these words, and I, I love these words, to make sure we be very clear. We don't mean just doing whatever we want inside, um, because I, unfortunately it really can lead to just terrible midot, bad character traits, and um, just a lot of unnecessary harm towards oneself and others. I really appreciate you bringing that up. That's really a, such an important insight. Mm. Um, but what I do love about the words, the authentic self and you know, living your truth is when a person makes a decision um, that something is meaningful to them and, and they commit to that value and they commit to that belief and they commit to that person, um, commit to that lifestyle, to never feel like they have to justify that commitment. I think that is one of the things I love about being authentic. I don't have to justify to you why I love, commit to this lifestyle, respect You're not my an decision. apologetic Jew. No. <laughs> Far from it. Far and from I think that's, an, that's the greatest, that's yeah. for me an attractive way of seeing the authentic self, that everybody has the freedom of choice to commit and choose the way they want to live their life. And once they made that strong commitment, and it's, we're talking about hard work, you know, in the Peter's Essence writings, I think one of the most reoccurring words, I don't have to tell you, is avoda, avoda. He loves the word avoda, um, which means work. And he even says that, you know, a Jew is called a servant of God, an Eved Hashem. Why? Because you're supposed to obey <laughs> work. <laughs> work the relationship. And, and I think when a person does make a decision to commit to a really long-term goal, and I think that's the greatest way to see authenticism. I want to be authentic to that long-term goal. I want to never give it up. I want to never fall into peer pressure, even if the rest of the world disagrees with me. I am committed to that greater goal. And Rav Shigar has a lot of times in his writings, and Rav Cook as well, this idea um, that you don't have to justify who you are. And um, Rav Shigar calls it lolat stick, not to justify yourself. And Rav Cook calls it, it's your neshama, you don't have to justify Hashem gave it to you. Um, and I think they're basically coming back to that, that word that, that you're talking about, the authentic, your truth. And I think one of the ways I try and apply being authentic in my own life is, number one, not insulting other people who have chosen different lifestyles. Mm. If I want to really ask from other people not to uh, have to force me to justify why I live the way I live, I have to give it back to them as well. So if there's a person or a people that disagree, that have different views than me, if I really believe in authentic living, I have to find something inside of me that can say, I respect your ability to choose that. I don't have to agree with it, but I can respect it because I want you to respect my authentic living. Maybe that's part of authentic living, is cultivating honor, kavod, respect for one's own core values that one is committed to live by and then that just like you said earlier you know in in how what you're emphasizing in your life now honoring your tradition specifically so then you can look out at other people's traditions and see the value in that even if you don't follow it yes this is beautiful and i really do like the idea that the word authentic could mean authentic in a long-term commitment because usually today not always but I do hear it a lot. Authentic is often uh, synonymous with in the moment. I'm being authentic to my moment mm. feeling right now, which does have a lot of truth to it. I'm not putting that down. 
but there's also another way of thinking of authentic, which is I, at this age, have decided this is the way I want to live my life. I've thought about it a lot. I've researched it a lot. And you know what? I'm going to start working and building my life towards it. And it doesn't matter how many haters, people who disagree with me, I have to be true to that authentic goal. That's the integrity. That's the backbone you're cultivating, a backbone. So it can be a long-term authenticity so, right. and that often yeah. isn't emphasized mm-hmm. much today. And I think that is connected to, in general, what it means, love, a Brit, covenant, um, the, the deepest relationships in our life are long-term. Um, we would we would never say the deepest relationship is that person I met one day and I never saw them again. Right, I was right. nice to them. <laughs> it's the person I worked really hard with. Could be a child, parent, spouse, grandparent, friend, Torah, <laughs> and no one can make me give it up wow. in the world. And don't ask me to give it up. Just like I'm not going to ask you to give your thing up. So I have a, a question, a follow-up question. In the, uh, what? How do you allow for your own growth where you may be a little bit different or flexibility or modifications? Because when you see this long-term commitment at this age in your life, uh, when you know I see you growing to be this God willing, I may have assumed you'll be an old man, you know, with a white beard, like from here to there. Yeah. Where is there room for flexibility? How does that fit into this? I think it's a it's a real tension in the word authentic, mm. that there is authentic meaning in the moment, which means change is always good, based on that definition. The more you change, the better, because it shows how authentic you are. And then the other definition of authenticity, which I was trying to emphasize, which is I will not change. I will not give in to mm. negativity, even inside myself. I commit to something that I really believe in. And even if I have doubts today, I'm not going to give it up. Even if I have doubts tomorrow, I'm not going to give it up. And that tension, I think, is actually quite healthy. We don't have to say one is completely right, the other one's wrong. Um, Flexigidity. Yes. <laughs> Flexigidity. So, and, and maybe that's really a great way to think of, of halacha, um, because I think the Torah has long-term goals, like keep Shabbat. Jews should, according to Shulchan Aruch, invest so much energy every week. And the Shulchan Aruch is, is the main book of Jewish laws um, written by Rav Yosef Karo in the 1600s, if I'm not um, incorrect. Um, and yeah, there is a goal, a long-term goal. Jews, spend your life trying to follow the laws of Shabbat. They're so deep, so meaningful. Don't change them. Don't try and you know change them every year that you feel differently. Commit to those same laws every year. However, within that, there's such thing as pikuach nefesh, um, which means, you know, if someone's sick on Shabbat and they're in danger of their life, um, the halacha says, you know what, give up that long-term goal right now of trying to, uh, you know, do Shabbat every week because right now your life is in jeopardy. You need to break Shabbat, go to the hospital, call someone on the phone, temporarily give up that long-term goal for the sake of the long-term goal. So maybe that's one way we could think of the tension being being complementary, that Sometimes, yeah, you have to be authentic to the moment for the sake of the long term. I'm thinking also when electricity electricity was discovered, there's no verse that says thou shalt not turn a light switch on. And there's all different opinions of what to do because this was something new in the Jewish world. How does this fit into Shabbat, to the holidays, when we're allowed to cook, for example, on Shabbat? I think as long as the authenticity of the moment keeps in its mind the long-term authenticity, they complement each other. Beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. So if I'm willing to, that, yes. to kind of temporarily yeah. put aside something I usually do, in your language being flexible, because I think it will strengthen the long-term commitment I made, that's, that that's is inspiring. something worth doing. Yeah, that's inspiring. That's it. That also gives a reference. Does this support or not? Does it diminish, God forbid, the long-term Right, so electricity on Shabbat is a great example of the rabbis came together and said this will actually strengthen the long-term goal of, of Shabbat for Jews. So even though it is a change, you're right, they have to be flexible in that moment, it was part of that long-term commitment towards Shabbat. You mean when they decided that uh, not to use? Right. Well, we but, can benefit. Uh, but they, but they, yeah, right. And all the changes and all, and, the, changes, and all right. the different things they right. were going to have to add and right. they exactly. didn't keep exactly the same laws that were before. 
Um, yeah, because now, you know, when electricity was first discovered, there were no timers. Right. The fact that lights can go on and off, yeah. uh, air conditioners can go on and off during Shabbat, they and do. it doesn't violate the Shabbat. And I think it's true also about yeah. like a friendship. You know, you say, I commit, Rav Yon, uh, sorry, Yonatan and David Amelech in, um, in, in the Sefer Shmuel, they make a Brit with each other, a commitment. Best friends, not husband and wife. And they make a Brit, a covenant, a long-term commitment that they're going to be loyal to each other. And King Saul is the father of Yonatan, and he keeps wanting to kill David. <sighs> and Yonatan says, it doesn't matter how many times my father wants to kill you, I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm keeping that. That is the goal. And yeah. whatever I have to do to keep that goal, I'm going to do it. And David clearly um, keeps that goal as well, because, you know, he has this person who's trying to kill him, but he's looking after his son all the time, and he's even married to his daughter, Michal. So I think that... Um, it's possible to apply this idea to be authentic to human beings could mean I commit to that friendship forever and ever but right now I have to be authentic to myself right now because I'm sick a little bit I have to cancel an appointment with them yeah, right, right. it's not because I've betrayed that long term no, authenticity very, very well put yeah I like the way you describe the check and balances it makes it, make, it makes it more real yes. it also makes it more doable yes Great, thank you. So let's move to the second question. You are a scholar of text. You have translated so much of Rav Cook's texts. You teach all over Yerushalayim, yeshivot, these different uh, you know, women's seminaries, men's yeshivot, and you have a background and a, and a long-term commitment in your authentic living to, to scholarship in Talmud Torah. So it may be difficult for you to answer this question. Uh, that being said, so it's, if it's difficult, it'll be a little difficult. It's a, it's a push, right? Do you have a favorite, or if you do, what is your favorite, um, your go-to favorite Torah teaching that expresses your personal sense of your Jewish identity the most? Wow, such a great question. <laughs> it is a difficult question. Um, and I remember asking you this question a while back, so yeah. I'm excited to be challenged the other way. Well, I think it's easy to, for me to say a piece that I like of Torah, but I want to I try and be accurate and say a piece that I really think is, like you said, go-to piece that just keeps coming back to my life over and over again. That piece speaks to me, and it doesn't matter what time period of my life I'm in, it always comes back to wow. me, that piece. And factually, not just because I like it, it just does. I end up wanting to teach that piece a lot. I keep thinking about it. I keep talking about it with people. There's a piece of Rav Kook called the Shir Merubah, um, the four-piece song. That's how I translated it in, in, in my book on Rav Kook. And um, I actually structured the whole book around this piece. Um, so what does Rav Kook say in this piece? It's from Orat Kodesh, um, his book, um, which is more spiritual and Kabbalistic. And uh, so Rav Kook says there's four main songs a Jew sings, four main um, beliefs, four main goals, four main commitments, four main authenticities, whatever you want to say. And he says, these are the four. Um, the first one, a Jew should aspire towards focusing on their own individual meaning, their individual song, he calls it, the Shira Yachid. So I have my own meaning in life, my own happiness, my own connection to God, my own connection to Torah, my own relationships, and I have to invest in those that's individual meaning. Mm. That's the first song, individual. The second is um, the nation, that I have a people. That's a different goal. That is the song of my people. I want to live in my people's land. Not just which land I enjoy. I want to be a part of my people. So that's the song of the nation. I want to look after my people. There's a reason you and I are in love with Judaism. It's our people, which returns to the first thing I brought up, my own tradition. And caring about the second song is not the same as the first. The second is doing things not just because I individually find the meaning, but I'm a part of a people. It's my family, to use the language of family. And, um, and yeah, I want to look after Jews. And I want to help Jews fall in love with their tradition. That's part of the second song. Not just whatever text I think is meaningful. I want to teach Jews Jewish texts. And I want to help Jews fall in love with Jewish land, Eretz Israel. And I want to help yeah. Jews... Um, fall in love with Jews, you know, helping Jews find Jews to marry. Uh, I care about my people. And uh, just like I remember when I was younger, I loved jazz. 
and um, and I studied music and film when I was 18, and I was always obsessed with jazz music, and all my favorite jazz musicians were African Americans, <laughs> and John Coltrane and Miles Davis, and uh, and I remember having a conversation once with with a musician when I was in Australia. I'm from Australia, and he said to me, "Why are you so in love with African American jazz music? You're Jewish." And he said, "Don't you have any Jewish songs you like?" And I remember back then saying, "No, I don't actually know many." Jewish songs that I actually like, and I felt this almost challenge from him, like, yeah, that is a little bit weird that I am in love with someone else's culture, someone else's music, and I don't even know my own culture, my own people, my own music, and so that's the second song, that, you know what, I want to find my own Martin Luther King Jr., Rough Cook is that, <laughs> I want to find my own John Coltrane, you know, Yishai Rubo, I don't whatever you want to say, um, and I really want, it's the national, it's not just individual, whichever music, whatever Torah. Um, so I really, that's the second song of Rav Kook, to really fall in love with the national part. Third song Rav Kook says is the song of humanity, Enoshiut. To really say, you know what, beyond the individual, beyond the nation, I'm part of a human race. And it doesn't matter what religion, what color skin, what gender, I love all human beings. Oh. And I'm part of that group as well. That's also my identity. I'm not just part of the identity of my nation. I'm not just part of the identity of myself. I'm part of the human race. And if another human being is insulted, I should take personal offense. And Rabbi Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, was very, um, he was a great role model for me in this third one. Um, because, you know, Rabbi Heschel, even though he was a rabbi and really in love with the Jewish tradition, he, and when he was in the 60s, you know, he, he, he walked with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma, and people would say to him, why are you here, Rabbi? Go back to the Beit Knesset. And he had this beautiful line he would say to people. He would say, whenever I go to the Beit Knesset, the synagogue, I open my siddur, all I can see is tears. So I've come here. I can't pray. So I feel this deep bond towards all human beings, and I, and I want to work on it even more, that it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, non-Jewish, man, woman, child, adult, I have a Brit with you. I have a covenant. We're all human. That's the third song. And then the fourth song, Rav Cook says, is the song of existence, which um, includes caring about the animals and the environment. Um, that, yeah, animals are also a part of me. I am part of existence. God created me part of this creation, and they are part of creation. I have to care about animals. I have to care about the environment, um, the floor, you know, not just to litter, um, to really care about, um, my mother's obsessed with, you know, not using too many plastic bags. You know, that is the fourth song. The fourth song is, Tzar Chaim. I don't want animals to be in pain. I personally am a vegetarian, and it's a direct um, result of Ruff Cook's teachings. It's not, oops, I became a vegetarian. The more I started his writings, the more, just naturally, I started caring about animals, because he talks about them in this very <clears throat> spiritual way. And, um, and, I, and I, I think those four songs, <clears throat> the individual, the nation, humanity, and all of existence, are real great, if you want to talk about authentic living, that's a great long-term goal. How do I spend the rest of my life trying to work on those four? And it could be that at different times you work on different songs, you know. I think I went that through a type of individual, uh, maybe 10 years of my life I was just individual, everything was individual. Um, and now I feel very national. Not national in the sense of like political, but obsessed with the Jewish tradition, obsessed with Torah, obsessed with mitzvot. Um, yeah, see how you organized the book. Yeah. According, I'm looking at the book, listeners, I'm looking at, and, and uh, look, I'm not going to advocate, I'm not a, I'm not a book uh, publisher or a bookseller. However, if you're enjoying Rav Ari's um, teaching so far and sharing part of his... Um, his mind, his heart, his his soul with all of us. You you really need to order order this book. And I, I see now, I've been reading it for the past couple of years, I never really paid that much attention to the actual, the first song, the second song, the third song, and the fourth song as you're describing it. It really is starting out from the epicenter and then, you know, moving out, moving out, moving out to the Enod Novado. There really is nothing other than the presence of the divine. Yes. That's everything. 100%. What I love about Rav Cook <laughs> is that he doesn't say, since everything is connecting to God, therefore we don't need to have differences. No, they're different. They are. They're different projects. There's not, you don't just say, I just love everything. You know what? You go through different time periods in your life. 
And I think wow. it's powerful to realize, you know what, maybe I'm in a time period of my life where I've got to go back to myself. Maybe there's another time period. I did enough self-work. I feel a little bit um, oversaturated in talking about myself. I want to talk about the Jewish tradition. I want to talk about my people. And maybe you're saturated, oversaturated with that. I want to talk a little bit about racism bothers me, sexism bothers me. Um, these things I want to talk about, human issues that aren't just to do with my people. And then there are people who want to talk about animal rights and talk about the environment. All four are um, significant and meaningful to me. And that's why, to answer your question, this piece keeps coming back to me. Beautiful. Oh, wow. I'm going to add that to one of my favorites because it also expresses, like you say, it's not just an inspiring teaching. It informs your journey. And that's what I was really, that was part of the question. Because all of us that are dedicated to scholarship in Talmud Torah, I'm sure we have many, many favorite pieces. Many favorite pieces. But how many really inform, mamach, really inform our own journey? And this is, this is remarkable from the specific to the most general. I love it. Yes. All right, the third question. How do you see your role as a voice of change in the Jewish world and the world at large? Right? <laughs> or do you see yourself as a voice of change? I look at you as a voice of change. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> that maybe you do also. So do you? And if you do, how do you see yourself as a voice of change? Um, it's a great question, as your question is very rich and, uh, <laughs> and deserve time uh, to answer each one. Um, well, I, I think I would answer that by just saying, number one, I think there's a lot of good things before we change Judaism and, uh, and the world. I think there's just some really good stuff in the world already. And to, to say, you know what, not everything has to change. And uh, there's some really, really great stuff. You know, we inherited such good Torah as Jews, such good, deep spiritual leaders. Um, halachot, oh my gosh, every time I learn a new halacha, a new minhag, I fall in love with it. Um, and uh, I didn't even know about that one. So there's a lot of things that's just like inheriting. I feel like I just want to inherit all the good things. We didn't start the world, we're inheriting it. And like also, a legacy? Yeah. It's close to a 4,000 year old oh legacy? Gosh. Even as a human being, not just as a Jew, just to feel like, oh my gosh, there's such good stuff that came before I was born. You know, I've studied so much Freud and, and Carl Jung. Um, and uh, and Eric Fromm, and like just talking about psychology, and then I started philosophy. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much good stuff before I was born. <laughs> and uh, and music, oh my gosh, anyone who's a music lover, you just start, you realize, oh my, there's all this good music before I was born. Jimi Hendrix and, and jazz, and oh my gosh, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and we can go into blues and, and pop music and the Beatles. In other words, to really, before we get to changing, I think that's one thing I want to uh, help people um, start realizing, which is, you know, before, there's a lot of good stuff that came before you, and and let's try and learn about it and fall in love with it. And I always loved old looking clothes, old fashioned clothes, and I always love old the vintage. Look, yeah, and yeah. I always loved, uh, you know, old bookstores. There's something inside of me that's very attracted to not just new and modern things, but really ancient things, and um, and ancient things you don't change, you inherit, you receive. And I love that you and I are talking about the Jewish tradition 4,000 years after it was created because we're still in love with it. So that's um, number one. I, I would love to be a part of helping people fall in love with um, ancient wisdom. That's a consciousness change. Yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a change within. There's nothing changing. What I'm hearing is the first dimension, the first step, the first approach is to perhaps change an attitude to, to, which is affecting the consciousness of how we see our history, how we see the legacy that we've been given, that we have, to quote you back, inherited. Yeah, Yerusha. Yeah. By the way, the, the, the Balatanya quotes us from a pasuk, you know, that the Torah is a Yerusha. It's yeah. an inheritance. Torah Tziva Moshe. Uh, um, Yerusha, Morasha, Kehilat Yaakov. Nacham, Morasha, Yerusha. It's an inheritance. And um, one of the things I admire so much about you, Yiska, and I talked about you with you this before, even on something that I recorded for myself, um, is how to find, on the one hand, that personal, individual search for meaning, 
but to come back to your own tradition, to come back, not to give it up, not to give up all this ancient wisdom, not to say, I have to pick one or the other. And I think that's really what I meant by, I feel like a lot of people today really are running away from all this ancient spiritual, and if you're a Jew, Jewish wisdom for the sake mm-hmm. of individual meaning, and I want to tell you, go to that individual meaning, but don't, don't think it has to lead away from your tradition. Find it in your ancient tradition. I would say that about if I was a priest, I would say the same thing to a Christian and a Muslim. If I was an imam to a Muslim, in other words, there really is so much good stuff behind you, not just in front of you. And it really is a tragedy sometimes when someone is so you know, enlightened today that their enlightenment always comes at the cost of giving up the past, always insulting the past. You reminded me of uh, one of the slogans at Pardes. I, I teach at Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. And one of their slogans, which is on a T-shirt that they, that they sell to the students, is see yourself in the text. So you're here today, 2021. See yourself in the text that we received in our tradition that goes back 3,400 years ago, 3,600 years ago, 3,800 years ago. See yourself in it. Amazing. See yourself in it. And I think it's a more interesting version of yourself. Sure. <laughs> the self as just me in the 20, you know, 2021 sitting here uh-huh. having my own thoughts is so boring. <laughs> superficial, I'm not at all very interesting, but all of a sudden, when I study ancient Jewish, spiritual, Kabbalistic, halachic, midrash, tanakh, things in my personality develop. It's not just the text, things about me start developing that I don't think I'll ever have access to if I don't go to those texts. The self is not, Rabbi Heschel has a few pieces like this, he says the self cannot just replenish itself all the time. It, it, it needs outside help. Yeah. And the outside help is not a threat. Oh my gosh, it's the greatest thing. That's why I love the idea of being dependent on friends. Yeah, don't, don't be so independent all the time. <laughs> Sometimes say, I can be vulnerable. I need your help. As a human being, I need other people. And as an individual towards wisdom, I need other wisdom, not just my mind. And that strengthens me as an individual to have a best friend. That strengthens me as an individual to have great spiritual text. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, that balance I see in your personality a lot. That It's such a fine balance, but I think you do it so naturally when I hear you. You're quoting Jewish texts in just such a natural way. And you're also so authentic to yourself. And it's, it, you're, just, you're such a richer person because of that combination, in my opinion. I guess that's part of how I see me as a voice of change. <laughs> it's, it's. I really value, I really honor and appreciate what you're bringing into this conversation. That change, that change is not always changing the outside. The structure is not always what's necessary. It's really changing the, one's attitude. Like, how can I be more of me I need to tweak. And it's also not hating me and trying to be somebody else because that's the other extreme. It's, yep. it's peeling away another layer. It's, it's, I call it evolution rather than revolution. Uh, the, uh, you know, Rabbi Sachs, uh, it's, it's still hard to say, may the memory of such a righteous person be for a blessing. You know, he sees that the giving of the Torah, the actual, however one understands this event, was perhaps second to the creation of the world was the most revolutionary moment in history. However, receiving it, the giving, the giving was what was so revolutionary. The receiving, that's a lifetime venture. That's that, the long-term commitment. That's the, we, we evolve. We're always evolving in how we receive it. So it's the same Torah. Yeah. It's the same, we don't change the Torah. However, depending where we are, we evolve. So I, I really appreciate this, like going and doing the inner work. Yes. As Rabbi Lou quotes in This Is Real and You're Totally Unprepared, right? Is learning to inhabit that phrase, inhabiting the inner self more. That's the change. And you bring that, your life, 
how you, you role model that. I know you from several years now, and I see that, that that's the voice of change you bring, is not so much to change the outside, but to tweak, to evolve, to uncover a piece of you as you inhabit your inner self a little bit more fully. I will say that I have tried to tweak outside, and there are times when it needs to be done, Yeah, and, yeah. and we shouldn't belittle the importance of sometimes, yeah, something physical outside has to be changed. But I have seen in my own life that usually when I have changed something and said, you know what, this halakha, I don't know about it, it didn't actually lead to more spirituality. <laughs> it ended up, so like, you know, if I, if I say to myself, well, I don't know if I want to do that minhag anymore. I'm going to give up that minhag. Because it's a, pre- a, pre- a custom, a Jewish a, a custom. custom. Say that? Which custom. is different than a halakha, halakha right? yeah. You know, let's take an example of a ma'im achronim. It's a very small one. But uh, so you wash your hands after um, doing bichar mazon. Uh, you, everyone, you mean before bichar mazon? Uh, just before, yeah. yeah. So after you are, So there's a usual halakha that most Jews do, which is you wash your hands and uh, then you eat, eat bread. Um, so that's ma'im rishonim. So then there's this ancient minhag called ma'im achronim. Um, the afterwaters? The, the afterwaters <laughs> that you basically do. Uh, just before you're about to bench and, and bless at the end, you wash your hands one more time. Now, it's not a halakha that you have to do. It is in the Shulchan Aruch, but there's a debate. And so there are Jews that do it, Jews that don't do it. Fine. Haredim more often not do it. Uh, religious Zionists more often not don't do it. Hasidim did it a lot. So even if you have a t- religious Zionists who are Hasidim, they might do it. But I remember for a while, I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And then I gave it up. I thought, you know what? It's, it's too much. And over the years... I realized I was missing something spiritual and meaningful about my um, about that I was eating, and I couldn't get it back without the minhag, without the custom. In other words, as much as I want to say I don't need that external physical thing, it's just about the idea anyway, and I learn all about the idea. No, the idea didn't actually come into my life. It you stopped. needed to manifest the idea through the action. Yes, and and learning to respect the physical. Yeah. And not just turn everything into symbolic meaning takes a took a long time for me um, because it's, it's I think it's just a natural thing for people who who tend towards inner matters to say the action isn't as important as the inner meaning and I realized in my own life as long as I believe that eventually I would lose the inner meaning as well mm. I didn't even get the deep meaning so there's a you, mm. you have to find a way I had to find a way to really come back to say you know what those physical seemingly boring actions are the key to getting all that meaning and even if I learn about the meaning of it I won't get the meaning unless I do the act <laughs> it's not an idea in the head the act um, actually transforms reality um, that's the tweaking of your consciousness and the Hasidim was so good at that years ago the Hasidim were one of the few revolutionary movements um, that I've studied that really didn't do big physical revolutionary changes they did inner revolutionary changes. Yeah. They actually kept Gosh, the external is, world the same. This is exquisite. This is exquisite. Thank you. Thank you for for bringing, for really emphasizing that type of what it means to be a voice of change. Because we tend to change when we think of change, it's everything outside, which is part of our tradition. Uh, I remember I'm celebrating now. You know, this is my Yovel, my fiftieth year after having first come to Israel fifty years ago in 1971. And I remember coming from Long Island, growing up in the 50s, if something was, let's say, 50 years old, it was like an antique. Because <laughs> I grew up post-World War II, the building, you know, I'm a, I'm a what's it called? I figured the uh, baby boomer. And there was the building boom. And everything was new and modern and new and modern. If something was 50, 60 years old, it's ancient. It's an antique. It goes to an, you can get it at an antique store. And then I I come here 50 years ago and I'm looking at remnants, like I go to the Western Wall, which is a remnant from the Second Temple from 2,000 years ago. I go, oh my, I don't even know what 2,000 years ago means because I come from a culture where everything's changed, 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 modernized, modernized, and knock it down and rebuild and knock it down and rebuild. And here's, here's something that has stood. Imagine if the stones can talk which sometimes I do believe they do talk, if you sit there long enough and meditate, you can actually, there is energy coming out because it has withstood. It has not changed. However, people that keep coming back to it and over 2,000 years, the people are changing in the consciousness. 
You just taught me something so much. And I'll just wow. give one. Uh, wow, wow, wow. There's one, one example <clears throat> that, well, I, you know, I've been learning the writings of Rav Cook for many years, and that led me to, to learn the writings of Rav Shagar, who, was, who considered himself a student of Rav Cook, even though he never met him. Um, he considered himself a student of Rav Cook's teachings. And uh, he passed away about 14 years ago, Rav Shagar. And, and, and this rabbi, Rav Shagar, one of the things that he taught me a lot was um, he had this very deep respect for things being according to the Masorot, the tradition. And he felt that redemption comes about through the Masorot, through your tradition, and not through having to change. And, and So even though he was this very deep, enlightened thinker, he dafka was excited about the old things. And I'll give you an example that he says one time in one of his books, he says, today they're making all these very modern synagogues. They're very beautiful. And, um, and you know, stained glass window. And it's just, everything's very beautiful. Um, there's air conditioning. And he says, I have enough modernity in my life. <laughs> I don't go to the synagogue to get more modernity. When I go to the synagogue, I want to return to the ancient, the eternal. I want to go to the Stiblach. I want to go to the oldest looking synagogue. I want to go the least renovated place. I want to use a second hand, third hand, fourth, you know, an old Sidor that's torn. That is where redemption is found. And I think the greatness of that story for me is not that he was negative towards the modern world. He was a very modern person. And if you've studied his writings, yeah, he, he talks about postmodernism and philosophy and psychology. Clearly, this man was not a closed minded thinker. However, within that openness, he had this very deep respect um, for the ancient, for the old. I, I, listeners, this is why Rav Ari is also one of my teachers. Because I've never heard how to understand the, a voice of change put the way you're expressing and articulating this. This is absolutely... It's really just inspiring me in, a, in quite a serious way. So thank you, in a, in a deep way, yes. Okay, let's move to the fourth question. Now that we know you're a voice of, of change, a change of consciousness uh, and redemption, so in light of that, actually in light of the previous three questions, and this is an A and a B, what is, if you could have one S come true, right? You know, the way Hashem came to Shlomo in the dream and said, okay, what's your one ask, <laughs> right? So this is the one ask. What is your one ask of status quo Jewish leadership? Whether you see status quo Jewish leadership as rabbinical and slash or educational through all the movements. However, when you think of leadership in the Jewish world, what is your one ask? Like, oh, I just wish, <laughs> if you would. As I said before, very rich questions, and they deserve an essay to be written <laughs> for every question, and I want to bring all the notes and footnotes. Okay, um, well, I would obviously have many wishes, but to, to put it down to one wish, um, I think that uh, the world we live in right now, um, unfortunately, uh, and the leaders... Um, need to try and help people realize this is there's this very deep um, intolerance towards the other mm. and um, and I think that that's something that rabbis and teachers all around the world need to emphasize more and I want to be very clear what I mean by tolerance tolerance does not mean agreeing right and yeah. I hear a lot about um, agreeing tolerance in the sense of it's almost you can call it self-absorbed ethics that um, the reason I respect that person or, you know, the reason I love that person is because they're just like me and always focusing on what's common. And, and I think there's obviously a lot of common, but what I'm referring to is being able to develop the midah, the character trait of tolerating people who are not like you. Focusing on, yeah, we actually disagree and I can still respect you. I don't want to focus on what's common. That's being able to only love things that I love. No, I really disagree with this person. Fundamentally, they get underneath my skin, but they're allowed to exist in my world. I give them permission. And you want to see more leaders and, and, role and model talk, that. talk that language, that language of, you know what? Let's say a person really is um, anti-Semitic in the sense of, you know what? They really do think Jews are doing bad things. 
but can you learn to respect us and our individual rights? And we say, you know what? You're allowed to have your opinion that you disagree with us. And I'm not going to hate you because of it. You respect my ability to live and I can respect your ability to live. We fundamentally disagree about something. And it's also the religious and the secular. You know, one of the things that Rav Cook was very good at doing is being able to develop really high quality relationships with secular Jews. And they really felt like he respected them. Um, he didn't just have this, you know, this fake tolerance of one day I'll get you he religious. Didn't wait, yeah, wait, I'll get he you didn't religious. Therefore, you, I like you. There's this amazing ability in Rav Cook to say, you know what, you're wise and smart and enlightened right now, even though you're secular. And, um, and, and the secular people did the same thing back to him. It was, it, it was like a ripple effect that they said, even though we wish you were secular, because <laughs> they did. There, there are discussions where secular people said, we don't know why Rav Cook's religious. He's so smart, so wise. <laughs> why isn't he like us? And eventually, the, the real students of Rav Cook, I'm talking about the secular students, not just the religious, really got to a point where they could respect them being religious, even though they wow. were secular. Wow, wow. And I'll give you an example um, that, you know, Shai Gnon um, was this great, great writer, an Israeli writer, and he, he won a Nobel Laureate Prize. Um, so he was really great. And he was a student of Rav Cook. Um, he would actually come to Rav Cook's house from time to time and speak to him and learn from him. And he had other friends he would bring. Um, ben Yehuda would come sometimes. And and uh, and, uh, and Bialik came and, and uh, Chaim to Brenner. A, to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> and and there's this one, mm. the great story I love, um, where Shagnon, who'd written you know, all these, he was basically like a pop star in his time in the sense of what is everybody doing in the early 1900s? not watching movies. There's no movies. There's no concerts. So they're reading books and novels. That is the pop star of that time. And he's the great, he's one of the greatest novelists. So you have to imagine, like, you know, the most famous movie star is a student of Ruff Cook, the most famous. And so he, he walks into Ruff Cook's house, um, Shagnon, and Ruff Cook says to him, you know, you've never shown me any of your books that you've written. I've heard about your great writing. Why don't you, you know, lend me some of your books? I want to read some of them. And Shagnon says, no, 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 I don't think you would like them. And what he's referring to Shagnon there's some R-rated scenes in his in his books, and I'm talking about sexually. In other words, there are um, the equivalent to sex scenes in his in his books. Now, obviously, in our language today, it wouldn't be so <laughs> radical, but still, he's like, I don't want to give the chief rabbi of Israel, who I respect so much, my books that have all these scenes that are not becoming of Rav Cook, and Rav Cook eventually convinces him, yes, you're gonna, I want to read them, and so. Um, according to the story, he shows up the next week with like 14 books of his and gives them to Rav Cook. And uh, he, he leaves and uh, a few weeks later he comes back and he, he says nervously to Rav Cook, you know, have you read them? What are your thoughts? So Rav Cook says like this, and I really think this is a great example of, of what I was talking about tolerance. Rav Cook says to him, I want you to know that there's a halakha, he knows the halakha, but he said there's a halakha of bitu b'shishim, that if you have a piece of non-kosher um, meat that falls into a, a pot of kosher meat and um, but it's less than 160th the whole thing's kosher including the non-kosher <laughs> <laughs> it's still non-kosher in other words you couldn't eat it by itself but because it's in that pot you can eat it that's a correct halakha that's, that, that is halakha and he says so too with your books he says there are some things I actually really disagree with but since the majority of it is really really high quality it's all good and and I think that's a great example of Rav Cook wow. being able to say, you know what, I do disagree with you, Shaignan, but I can respect you. Oh. And um, and there are fundamental things that we disagree with, but wow. I respect you. Ari, yeah. Listeners, do you hear that? Speak to your rabbis, speak to your teachers. You can quote Rav Ari in Yerushalayim. I can disagree with you, and I respect you. Thank you. That's a that's a that's an important ask. Now the other side to this though is not though and the other side. What is your one ask of status quo Jewish congregations of the Hevra, of the Kehilot, uh, Jewish communities all over the world? What what is your ask of them? The people who follow the leaders. <laughs> so this is a question towards the. Um... The masses and not yes, towards the leaders. Exactly, exactly, wow. yes. Um, it's a great, great question. Um, well, I think that uh, there's a piece of Rav Cook that 
since we've been talking about Rav Kook a lot, that I, that I love, where he says that over the time period of history, earlier on, there was a big gap between the leaders and the masses, and Moshe Rabbeinu was so above, you know, the, the rest of the Jewish people, and Rambam was so greater than everyone else, and the Piazesna, he really was this Hamish Tzaddik. And over time, Rav Kook says that the gap, the gap is closing, that the masses are getting more enlightened and smarter and more spiritual and deeper, and the leaders are getting, um, he, he's not going to insult them and say they're not as smart and wise, but guess what? When the masses are really high, you're not that far away from them. And I feel like this, and I'm sure you've experienced fewer, this as Phil. There's fewer as people have, great Sadiqim have passed away. Yes. There's not this, you know, waiting in the wings <laughs> to, to, to replenish. Yes. Uh, so I feel like as a teacher, I feel sometimes I'm, te- I'm speaking to students and they know things and many things about the Jewish tradition. I'm supposed to be a rabbi that's teaching the Jewish They know things about the Jewish tradition. I don't know. And instead of seeing that as something that threatens me, it's something Rav Cook is actually excited about. And he calls, he bases a quote from Yirmiyahu that says, you know, one day the knowledge of God um, will spread out um, that no one will need to ask each other who is God because everyone will know God themselves. And I think that's an answer to to your question, uh, which is what I would like the congregations to kind of work on, which is to try and take responsibility for their own Judaism. That and to, and to not say, my rabbi, my teacher is the only one um, who knows Torah, but to say, I have my own personal relationship to the Torah, to my tradition, um, and I want to be an expert in it. I want to be a leader in it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wish um, that comes in the Chumash that, that uh, there are two people who are prophesizing um, in the camp and Moshe finds out about it and he says, if only all the Jewish people would be prophets. And that's sometimes how I feel. Like when I have students who they say, wow, you know so much about Ruth Cook. And I think to myself, you could know just as much. You could read just as much. You could dedicate it. Um, there's nothing essentially any different between you and I. And um, and I think that's a very exciting uh, goal that a student overtakes their teacher. <clears throat> and I know that um, when I learn Rav Cook, I really feel like that is his wish of me. I, it's like this hint between the lines, like, come on, no more than me. Um, and I wouldn't be upset at you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a perkei well, mifurash, you know, from all my students, you know, I learned. Right, from my, I was just, that's what I was just yeah. thinking of. Also, it's in Masechet uh, Ta'anit. You know, from my teachers, I've learned. Well, yeah, teachers. Yeah, it's from. Well, yeah, no, it's you know, I I learned uh, from all my students. He's and it's and then they quote that line. Uh, yeah, from my pastor. teachers, I've learned a lot. From yeah. my colleagues, I've learned even more. And from, well, my from my students, I've learned, learned the most. So what I'm hearing is your ask of the of the chevra of the followers of the leaders yeah. is start not only assuming responsibility for your own you know, Jewish journey, start teaching your teachers. Yes. Start and start believing you can. Give yourself permission. Because the real teachers want to learn from the students. They're the deepest relationships. The, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Rav Cook was so excited by having Shagnon in his life and Chaim Brenner and, and Bialik. These are really smart people. Right. And he, he liked, liked being around smart, smart independent thinkers. And... He was such a good listener, of course. Oh. oh my gosh. Every new idea he learned, he somehow finds a way to internalize it his own belief. And it becomes his belief all of a sudden. Well, Not that he stole it, but he really loved what he heard, respected it, and incorporated So I think Rav Cook is a great embodiment of this idea. Mm. That, you know, his students became empowered by being around him. Um, and one last thing I'll say about what I would like, you know, from the masses connected to what I was saying, is I feel like... Um, you know, like my father and I, we have a chavruta, and we, we've been doing Tanakh, um, and we, we finished a whole book of Sefer Shmuel together, and we did Sefer wow. Malachim. you and your and dad. He was stuck, my parents were stuck here during Corona in Israel, so we had so much time to learn Torah Baruch Hashem. And uh, I remember he, he turned to me one time, and he said, thank you so much for teaching me um, all these things, because he didn't grow up learning Tanakh. He'd heard about the stories, but we literally went through every word. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, that's, something tragic that that my father's saying I wish I would have known more about Torah that I could teach it to you and sometimes that is part of 
you know, the job of, a, of an individual. You're going to be a parent one day. You're going to be a grandparent. Um, your job is to pass on wisdom to your children, to your grandchildren. And if you don't take the feeling that it's my responsibility to really learn Torah for myself, um, how are you going to do that? And I know that when I teach Torah to my girls, I really feel like, yeah, you know what? I have studied this really well. I, I, I know what I want to say to them. I know what I want to give to them. And, um, and my other, you know, and he, he always said, he said, I wish I would have known more growing up so I would be able to give it to you. I didn't develop a personal yeah. relationship with Torah to be able to do that. This is another teaching from, from Rav Sachs. He says that wherever we are in Jewish history, we're like this point and there's generations before us and God willing generations will follow us. At any point where we find ourselves, we are guardians of our history and we are trustees of our children's futures. Yeah, so there we go. So that's the, uh, that's the ask of the Hevra. Be trustees of your children's futures. Wow, that's beautiful. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. This has been so inspiring. Uh, to, all my, to all my listeners, I hope you're leaving this podcast with this conversation feeling in one way or another inspired and in conclusion, what if some of the listeners would like to follow up with you if they have any specific questions or they want to read your book or they want to be in conversation with you on their own? What's the best way for them to be in touch with you? Um, in the book, uh, there's a few uh, websites and, and so they can uh, follow them and, and my email is in there as well um, if they want to email me. So I'm happy to, you can put it in the link. Um, and, uh, yeah. I will when I send it out. I'll um, I'll, I'll mention in the letter, in the in the email. I'll put, I'll mention the name of the book and your email. Um, yeah. And uh, if you're obviously ever in Jerusalem, uh, in, don't have to go abstract. You can come to a class and and reach out and email and uh, you know can let you know which class that week and hopefully you can stop in. Um, and I really do think, just as a last thought, Yiska, um, that what you're doing in your own life mission is so inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, ha- I do mention you in classes. I want you to know <laughs> that I, I mention you to many students and it is so healthy for them to hear me compliment you and I compliment you in such a strong way. Uncompromising compliments <laughs> and um, unapologetic, sorry, uh, compliments. And I really do think that the more people get to know you, speak to you, learn from you, hear your story, um, the better they'll be able to be their authentic selves. Part of redemption is when we, uh, we each have a midrash and we need to learn and hear each other's midrashim, each other's stories and see how it can inform our own. Yes, as mine has informed yours, as yours has informed mine, as ours has informed others and as theirs has informed our, ours. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you um, with m- so much gratitude. Mamash Harbei Hodaya. And um, in closing, I want to wish everyone a-, a safe... We're in the summer now, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Most of us, most of the listeners live in the Northern Hemisphere. So when you travel out, also now that more and more in places in the world, the, uh, the pandemic, Corona, COVID is... You know, we're moving out of that into we can travel a little more, go to the beaches, go on hikes, go into nature, visit other cities. I bless all of us, Be'ezrat Hashem, with God's help. May we sense the divine presence in our different journeys, in our different trips, in our different hikes. And may you travel safely as you uh, move out of your homes and venture forth back into the world. Travel safely, really take care of your souls, take care of your bodies. This, uh, this whole life that we're experiencing now is a mind, body, heart, and soul experience. So I bless us all that we really take care of that and enjoy and celebrate those moments with yourself, with your family, with your people, with other people, all of humanity, and with the rest of the world. Sing those songs of Rav Cook. To Dava Kotu will be in touch. <laughs>